Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. For the New Books Network, this is New Books and Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Keith Simmons. Arguably, one of the most dynamic politicians of the 21st century was Hugo Chavez. Despite being in power for over a decade, however, few Venezuelans can agree on exactly what type of legacy Chavez left behind. And yet, despite having international recognition, few in the international community can come to a similar consensus. Rory Carroll, a journalist with The Guardian, has written the book Comandante, Hugo Chavez's Venezuela. Rory joins us now for an interview on his book. Rory, welcome to the show. Hey, Keith. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I was wondering if you could start off by perhaps giving us a little bit about your background um, in terms of where you went to school um, and how you came to be a journalist. Uh, I was born in Dublin, Ireland, um, and I went to school in Blackrock College, uh, a rugby-playing uh, middle-class school, uh, which I loved. Um, it was missionary priests uh, who ran it, and they were full, full of stories of Africa and, and uh, Asia, places where they had been missionaries, uh, which fascinated me. I didn't want to be a priest, but uh, it did give me a desire to, to, to visit those places. And also my father, he was uh, a journalist with the Irish Times and RTE, the Irish broadcaster. So that inculcated uh, a sense of storytelling uh, in me. And uh, I studied, I did my bachelor's degree in Dublin. And after that, I did a a journalism course for a year and then got a job at a newspaper in Belfast, uh, where I spent my first two years in journalism there in my early 20s. And that was the start of my career, and uh, I've been doing it now for for 20 years. Fantastic. Um, And it seems as though with your work as a journalist, and particularly when you came to work for The Guardian, um, one of the things that you talk about in the book uh, is how you came to write um, this this story about Hugo Chavez. I was wondering if you could perhaps recount some of that uh, for our listeners. Sure, I'll give you a bit of background because the, this was my first and so far only book. And I had thought about doing books before. Um, I've been with The Guardian for not, almost like 19 years now. And they posted me all over the world. I was in Rome covering the Mediterranean for three years. I've been covering Silvio Berlusconi, the Pope, the Mafia, the end of the, of the Balkan Wars. And then I was in Africa for four years and also I was in Iraq, in Baghdad, for a year. And these places were all fascinating. I, I loved covering them. Um, I mean, they were challenging. Um, but I never had, none of them ever gave me the desire to write a book in the sense that I just felt that um, there was no particular story that grabbed me enough uh, as for something that would merit me investing a good portion of my life in, in, in doing a book. And also might speak to the fact that as a journalist, my background is more writing uh, a 1,000 or 1,500 word story. It was kind of quite long by my standards. So the idea of doing a, an entire book 
was quite daunting. Uh, but after The Guardian moved me to Venezuela, and that was in 2006, I quickly uh, became fascinated by Hugo Chavez and what was happening in Venezuela. It was, uh, I had a ringside seat to the revolution. Um, the, and I, although I did a lot of traveling around Latin America, I would always come back to Caracas, which was my home actually for six years, from 2006 until 2012. And I mean, Chavez is just such a, uh, an unusual um, character, a larger than life character. And what was unfolding in Venezuela was just so, uh, again, unusual. It, it was just so strange. And so that in itself was, gave me just a, a real drive to, and a lot of curiosity to, tr to try to understand the, the dynamics of, of what was happening. But also I became very frustrated um, when I would travel, when I would leave. Well, I became frustrated about the misperceptions uh, uh, the, and the mythology and the propaganda for and against uh, Hugo Chavez that kind of contaminated the, you know, the, the, the truth about who he was and, and what he was doing. Now, and this kind of this is partly because of polarization uh, in Venezuela. For example, people would usually either adore the guy um, and revere him or they would demonize him and say this guy is like some sort of Stalinist baby eater. And that polarization was often reflected uh, abroad. When I would travel, I would go home to Dublin, or I'd go and visit uh, friends in Asia or, or, or uh, in the United States. And invariably, people go, oh, you live in Venezuela. What? So what's, what's Chavez like? And, and really, often they didn't really want to hear what I had to say, it was that, it was because more people always had an opinion about Chavez, and it usually was one of two options. One is that he was a heroic, romantic figure uh, fighting for the poor and standing up to George Bush and, uh, and forging a, a, a bold, new, innovative model of, um, uh, of governance, and uh, that this guy was a hero. Version two was the sort of thing you would see on Fox News which was that here was a, uh, a communist or certainly a socialist uh, demagogue who was uh, in cahoots with Iran, uh, perhaps with, um, with Hezbollah, uh, who was um, jailing, murdering people and, and so forth. And he was just like a bloodthirsty tyrant. And both of those caricatures uh, were were so far off the mark. I mean, each had a kind of had had some facts to them, but they both really missed the essence of of who he was, and that became very frustrating to me because I thought, you know, wh why is it that people don't get it? They they they, they you know they, they have to choose one of these two binary options, and that really is is from that desire to try to 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 show a more nuanced. Uh, portrait of, of Chavez, that's what gave me the impulse to write the book. Interesting. And as you were writing the book, it seems like you tapped into um, a very public um, and I think arguably a very complex resource um, in order to get a better picture of Chavez. And it was to watch uh, broadcasts of his show, uh, Hello President. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you could perhaps talk about um, what that show was 
and sort of how you came about to use it as a source for your book. Yeah, Chavez turned Venezuela into a, a version of the Truman Show, uh, but it's inverted in that he was on TV uh, all the time, or felt like he was on TV all the time. He would pop up um, certainly almost daily um, on the airwaves, and uh, he could speak for hours uh, at a time. And he could be at anything. It could be he would talk, uh, he'd turn up at a, at a farm and he'd be driving a tractor, or he'd be in the palace, uh, Miraflores Palace in Caracas, uh, hosting a state visit of some dignitary, or he would be uh, reviewing a military parade or, you know, something. And he was always just turning up and he was such a showman and he was such a talented and skillful communicator and his ability to, you know, to keep the limelight on himself um, was meant that he, he kind of sucked up all the, the oxygen and he was really a master of, of television. Uh, he would uh, not only be a performer, but he had this uh, weekly Sunday show called Allo Presidente or Hello President. And this became a, a, an institution in itself and almost it was his form of, it was like rule by television. And he would, do, it would move location um, each Sunday and it would start at 11 o'clock and you never quite knew where he was going to pop up. He could be in the palace or he could be hosting it often from an outdoors venue, um, for example, a, a, a city plaza or uh, a new government run cooperative or anywhere. And he would have guests on the show um, and he would have an, a live audience there of supporters uh, he would do cutaways via satellite to uh, a government program somewhere else in Venezuela. And he would be hosting this. He would also be his own director. Uh, he would also be actually literally directing the cameraman during the show. And this was largely unscripted. There was no, uh, he was not reading um, anything. He, he, would, uh, he would just be improvising most of the, of the time. And these shows could go on for hours and hours and hours, um, up to eight hours. And... It would set the agenda for the for the following week, and he would use the show to uh, to appoint new ministers, uh, also to fire ministers uh, that he felt were were not performing. He would use the show to uh, fire broadsides or insults against uh, his, his enemies, uh, notably George Bush, uh, and he had a whole range of of choice insults about Bush. You'd call him like a a drunken cowboy, a pendejo which you could translate as sort of an, uh, an asshole. Uh, he called him a, a, as uh, somebody who's more dangerous than a monkey with a razor blade uh, and so forth. And he, he was very colorful um, about these things. And it was kind of quite um, very, so, so basically knowing what he was up to, it was often simply a matter of turning on the TV. And there he would be live uh, talking about what he was up to, saying he was talking about his plans, his dreams, um, for example, to, to build artificial islands in the Caribbean, uh, to forge a nuclear pact with Russia, uh, to rename the, the country, to, to uh, rename the currency, to change the country's flag, to change the country's time zone. And, and he would do this all on, live on, on air and ministers would be obliged to almost enact immediately uh, his pronouncements. Um, he would also mobilize troops to the border when during the times of, of tension with Colombia. And so it was a lot of news uh, in, this, in this show. And it's, there's nowhere else. I've never seen anything else quite like this. 
um, as, a, as, a, as a form of governance. Now, of course, there's a lot of real performance to this because, I mean, although it was, it appeared all improvised and spontaneous, I mean, Chavez clearly was quite a shrewd planner and he was able to, uh, to use the show to basically, again, to keep the limelight on himself and often as a way to maybe to, uh, to set the, the, the agenda and to also divert uh, people's attentions away from problems in the country and, and steer the conversation uh, and narrative of, the, of, the, of his government into areas that he wanted people to talk about. So for me, I, um, I would make sure to watch the show um, as often as I could. And in fact, I ended up on the show myself as a, as a guest at one time. Really? How how did you wind up on on uh, the show as a guest? That sounds like a very fascinating moment to be near Chavez. I lobbied the uh, the government communications and information ministry. I said, "Hey, this show, I'd love to be you know to be you know uh, to sit in on one one broadcast uh, to do a, like a behind the scenes story for the Guardian about what you know what what it felt like you know to to, to do the show." So eventually, um, after much um, hesitation. They they said okay. So one Sunday, I was told to be at the airport um, very early. It was about like 5:30 a.m. And I myself and a Chinese journalist uh, who was also allowed on the show were taken in a government jet um, to uh, a place in eastern Venezuela, a very rural coastal area, which is very very hot. Then we're taken in helicopters, military helicopters, uh, to a remote village, and from there we were taken in a convoy. Uh, to this little fishing hamlet, which is where Chavez was doing the show that day. And I was uh, seated in the audience, uh, mostly people wearing red T-shirts. And we were all sitting literally on the beach under these kind of um, plastic chairs uh, with a tent and Chavez uh, at a desk and all the cameras on him and the cameras rolling and as a live broadcast. And so I was seated among all these red T-shirted officials, mayors, functionaries, supporters, um, ready to you know to watch the show, and it was um, that, I think that particular day it, it lasted six hours, and um, although to me it felt eternal at one point because Chavez uh, picked me out from the audience early on and said, "We have here a journalist from the Guardian, Rory Carroll. Welcome, Rory. What is what is your <laughs> question? What is your question for us?" And um, so I actually hadn't anticipated that he was going to invite me to ask a question. Uh, so I did. I, I just I said, well, there's a referendum um, campaign on at that time, um, in which he wanted to abolish presidential term limits. And his critics were saying that this was very worrisome because this was another step towards authoritarianism. And so I asked him about this, about whether you know the, the, this concern that. This would be another step towards uh, authoritarianism, and he 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 really let me have it. He the the, the question uh, just kind of landed with a thump on his desk, and he he could see from his facial expression, I mean, he you know he he didn't like it, and he then proceeded to spend the next uh, to me it felt like hours, but I think in reality it was more like fifteen twenty minutes uh, assailing me as a representative of colonial Europe and of all the vices uh, of the old world, of vices of cynicism, uh, hypocrisy, 
Um, and then he went into lots of riffs, historical riffs about uh, the, the, the Royal Navy, about Queen Elizabeth, about European uh, genocide in Africa and uh, various other sins committed by, by Europe. And all the time using me as a, as a rhetorical uh, punch bag. And this went on. And I mean, it, it, eventually then he, he invited me to set to um, he said, what do I he asked me? What do I think about this? How to respond to this? Uh, broadside. So I, he, so the microphone was passed back down to me, and I uh, said, "Well, you know, I'm actually not British. I'm Irish, and I, I'm a Republican to boot. I, I I don't believe in monarchy as a, as a good system of government. So therefore, I, you know, my my views on monarchy. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to defend the monarchy, let alone Queen Elizabeth. And I said, uh, No importa." Uh, what I think about these issues, like no importa, like it does not, doesn't matter. And he then kind of squinted at me and repeated my words back to me, no importa. And he said, yeah, no importa. And I said, yeah, I mean, like, at least I thought, I, you know, yeah, no, it doesn't matter what I think. But he turned those words against me and he said, it doesn't matter. But Rory, you know, the genocide in Africa matters to us. The dignity of our people matters to us and so forth suggesting that I had had kind of contradicted this, uh, which I hadn't, but um, it was just a, a, a verbal debating trick to, you know, to turn the, the tables on me. And so then proceeded to, uh, to pour an another bucket of rhetorical excrement over my head and so forth. And so the show went on. Um, what was interesting was eventually he, you know, he, uh, he left, uh, the, he, he actually did answer my question about two or three hours later into the show. And, his answer to my question was actually really interesting and I think very sincere. He said the reason they had to abolish term limits and basically give him the opportunity of being perpetually reelected in power for life uh, was that the revolution was like a painting and he was the artist and, and, art, and the painting was unfinished and therefore he as the artist could not in good conscience pass the brush to somebody else because only you know, the artist can, can see the vision of what the painting uh, should be when it's finished. And therefore, he had to finish the painting. And I think because he was actually an amateur painter himself, and I think he, that's really how he saw things. And so, I mean, painful as it was for me to elicit that, that response in, in, in that way, but it, it did basically shed light on, on how he viewed his role in Venezuela and his role in history, really. So that and that was my 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 one and only cameo on Allo Presidente. And it sort of sounds like it's a cameo that you wouldn't necessarily want to repeat again in the future, I imagine. Uh no, I wouldn't rush to repeat that. Uh, <laughs> um but no and it was it was funny because I became like a, a, a for a few days and weeks after that I became like a minor celebrity in Venezuela. And since the people would stop me in the street and go, are you the guy? You're the guy who's on the TV. You know? <laughs> and what was funny was that the, the people who, who despised Chavez uh, said, you know, their interpretation appeared to be that I really stuck it to the man. You know, I was, you know, I was really, I was bold and I, you know, uh, and I stood up to him and he, you know, he freaked out. Whereas Chavez's supporters saw it as another way. They, 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 they felt that, no, this was more like a, an honest exchange and might be robust, but it was all cool and everything was fine. And Chavez gave a very compelling answer uh, to my answer, 
and so forth. And, you know, that's just a little illustration of how um, the Chavez was able to, uh, that he, he elicited such strong, visceral, and so, such contrasting responses in people that they could see the same thing and yet draw completely different conclusions. And that also applied, of course, to, uh, to people watching Venezuela from afar. In the United States, Europe, elsewhere, they would look at Venezuela and either see a, uh, a, a, a system of government that was enlightened and progressive and uplifting the poor, or they would see uh, a system that was uh, authoritarian, thuggish, dictatorial, communist, um, all but looking at the same country. So it was, there's almost a sense of magical realism uh, there that, you know, people, you know, of kind of, of, um, of mirages uh, and which enables people to project their own uh, values and fantasies uh, onto this canvas that was Hugo Chavez's Venezuela. And I think part of what's crucial in order to understand um, that aspect of Hugo Chavez, not only in the sense of him being polarizing, uh, but when you start talking about his background, um, where he grew up, uh, the sort of things that he enjoyed, I wonder if you could perhaps um, tell us a little bit about those details, because I think um, it's certainly crucial to keep these things in mind when you're trying to ultimately assess the type of individual that Chavez was. He was born... Um, in a very rural area uh, of Barinas State, very kind of rural agricultural backwater. And um, he had five brothers. He was largely raised by his grandmother, actually, rather than his parents, um, which was um, interesting. And he was a great uh, baseballer. I mean, he was actually quite challenged as a kid as, um, as baseball. So his dream as a teenager was to play in the major leagues. And so he, for that reason, uh, he joined the military, which is a good option for a kid from, uh, from you know, these kind of poor background was he joined the military, get an education. And in his case, he hoped that he would become, um, he could then join the military, would then train him for sport and he could become, um, pursue his dream. Uh, but somewhere along the line, he, he discovered that he loved the, the military. He loved soldiering. He loved uniforms. He loved the marching, the parades, the camaraderie, uh, the sense of hierarchy, um, and it just really suited him. And so he spent almost his entire life, before, uh, his entire adult life before politics in the military. And he, even after uh, he left the military, he would always kind of call himself a soldier. And that was very much his mindset. That's where he, he was educated, and that's where he, he matured into an adult. And I think that was very instructive into the the politician he became because he was often very uh, he acted in, in, a, in, a, in a military sense that he was the commander he'd be passing down orders and that his minions and colleagues would um, would do what he would what he ordered um, this was partly uh, following the the culture of, of the caudillos in Latin America um, and certainly on the military background but it was also in the military where ironically he um, although he pledged loyalty to, to the government. And at that time, Venezuela um, in the 70s and 80s uh, had democratic government. I mean, Venezuela was uh, uh, a liberal democracy, albeit a, quite a dysfunctional one. Um, there was a lot of corruption and, um, and there was a certain degree of, uh, of decay in, the, in some of the democratic institutions. 
So he, and also there's a lot of inequality in the country. Now, Venezuela uh, is a petrostate, and that is probably the single most important fact about Venezuela, um, and one which is often overlooked by, by, by people looking from afar. It's a petrostate, and that affects its economy. It affects how people view their own country. And so when there's poverty, and there was a lot of poverty, and still is, uh, people would feel that it's not just because uh, the country isn't working well, it's because somebody's stealing the money. Because we, you know, there's a lot of petrodollars, but if I'm poor, therefore it's because somebody's stealing the petrodollars. And I think certainly that's how Chavez looked at it. And so he uh, led a coup uh, against the government in 1992. And until then, he was an unknown. Uh, he was a lieutenant colonel, and he specialized in communications and armor, uh, which, uh, again, is quite telling in terms of his personality. This guy had, had the gift of the gab, and he liked tanks. So right there, these two um, facets of his personality. He, the coup was a military fiasco. Um, it, it caused a lot, a lot of explosions in, in Caracas, but it collapsed very quickly. But it turned him into a, a media star. I mean, out of this, uh, the ashes of this defeat, he, he went on television um, to order his troops to surrender. And he used um, just, uh, it was just basically a soundbite, but he appeared to a startled nation um, introducing himself and saying that their objectives uh, had not been achieved for now, um, and, but that they basically hinting that they would be back. And this made him a star, people, because the government is so unpopular that they, they thought this guy is very dashing, he had a beret, uh, he's very articulate. And so although he went to jail uh, for the coup, he, um, he emerged from jail a few years later. He was released early, and he was a politician at that point. And then he was able to assemble a coalition uh, of grassroots movements, of left-wing uh, groups, progressive groups, um, old-style communists, uh, environmentalists, a very eclectic coalition. And he became their, uh, the head of this coalition. He then uh, roared to an election victory in 1998. And this was because oil prices had collapsed and Venezuela was in, uh, its economy uh, was on its knees. People were desperate and they were angry. And so they, they voted for Chavez. As the as the outsider, as he was a guy who's going to come in into and clean up or reinvent a, a broken system, and that was the mandate he was given when he was elected. And I think, given this this background that you just talked about um, with Chavez, it dives into his philosophy and sort of his vision for um, the revolution. Um, I, I it sounds as though that's really the beginning stages of. Uh, when people weren't really sure what to make of Chavez, uh, because he didn't necessarily uh, try to go in and immediately shake over uh, the power structure. Um, he tried to keep a lot of things in place initially, um, but some of that gradually starts to change, and he seems to sort of to push out his old um, power coalition. So uh, I wonder if you could perhaps tell us um, what you see as sort of the crucial turning point when uh, Chavez ultimately shifts perhaps one way or the other, or if that never happened at all. No, there was a definite shift. The early Chavez in his first few years of power was actually quite cautious, quite moderate in his policies. Uh, he'd retained the, the previous outgoing finance minister. 
he 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 insisted that he was no socialist, um, and in fact he he professed to be in favour of sort of a, 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 a Blair type third way between socialism and capitalism, and you know he was uh, fiscally prudent, and and so forth. So and um, what was not cautious was his rhetoric was always quite strident. I mean, even in the early time he was he'd be very insulting um, and often to the point of vulgarity about his opponents. And that was just his, his style. But he was quite cautious um, economically until then in 2002, he'd been in power uh, just three, it was over three years by then. The opposition uh, was very radical. They, they hated him and they felt that he was an, a usurper and that he was dangerous. And they, and they staged a, a coup and they briefly overthrew him. This was a, a collection of the, of the Venezuelan military and the old elites, and it was given tacit backing uh, from George Bush's White House. Now, the coup briefly ousted Chavez, but it then swiftly unraveled, and he stormed back to power uh, stronger than ever. And he, after that, I think that was one tipping point. And I think he, because it gave him such a fright that he realized just how high the stakes were and that. Um, some of his opponents were certainly not going to play by democratic rules. So that was uh, that's radicalized him. And then soon after that, he started using the word socialist, saying, well, from 2005, I think he, he, he oust, outed himself as a socialist. And he forged an ever closer alliance with Fidel Castro, uh, which meant bringing in lots of Cuban uh, doctors and nurses in a... Uh, a very innovative uh, program to to bring uh, health clinics right into the into the barrios into the heart of the slums. Um, less happily, it also meant bringing in lots of Cuban intelligence agents um, and military planners as well. And they gradually um, took over large chunks of the Venezuelan government. And some people would say they actually became the puppeteers in the sense that they they Chavez tr- often trusted the Cubans more than he trusted some of his own. Uh, some of his own Venezuelan officials. And for me, I think a real turning point was around 2007, when he'd won another term, a very, uh, he'd won a re-election in 2006 by a very big uh, landslide. And everything seemed to be going his way. Um, oil prices had exploded. So uh, state coffers were uh, just were swamped with uh, with petrodollars. I mean, so much money. It was like a, a historic bonanza, uh, raining petrodollars on Venezuela. Uh, George Bush um, and the Iraq adventure was becoming a disaster for the United States. And so Chavez had a, a sitting duck in terms of um, uh, in terms of a, a, a widely despised foe. So he became. Uh, a champion or a spokesperson for people who who could not really abide George Bush, and I think it all went a bit to his head because you could see then um, a lot of mistakes, you know, one mistake piled on onto another in terms of uh, economically and and especially economically. I'll give you some examples. They they started persecuting uh, private landowners. Uh, they would the, the government would encourage people to. Uh, to seize the land, people would kind of march into and occupy um, hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland. And the government would then, um, in place of what had been a private uh, farmer, they would then spend a lot of money setting up these socialist cooperatives. And I visited uh, a lot of them, and 
the the idea in some ways is that was actually quite a, uh, an attractive idea, but the execution was abominable. There was complete mismanagement. Um, funds were wasted. Uh, people weren't trained properly, and it became. And you could see the, the consequences in food production. Food production plummeted. Uh, you could see then there was uh, shortages in the in the in the stores. And so instead of acknowledging the error of this policy, uh, Chavez would then try to tackle the symptoms. He said, "Well, if there's shortages, um, this is because uh, supermarkets are hoarding food." So we're going to we're still going to start arresting um, uh, supermarket managers. Or if prices are rising, it's not because it's a shortage caused by our policies. It's because um, capitalist vampires are uh, are trying to sabotage the revolution. So, for example, the the army would go and arrest butchers and and haul them off to military barracks. And these sort of mistakes would um, were, were were piling up. And the same thing would happen with the state uh, energy infrastructure, which uh, they, uh, they would not invest properly in uh, in electricity or or uh, power plants, and so they began to de- to decay and to to run uh, to run down. So blackouts became quite common, which Chavez would then blame on the CIA. Or at one point, I think they also blamed possums for eating the cables um, and and causing blackouts. And this went on, and then. Uh, he would say, oh, the, the, the currency, because the government's printing presses were, were going into overdrive and, of course, more inflation, uh, Chavez's solution was to rename the currency and to take shave three zeros off it and to rename it the, the, uh, the strong currency, which, of course, is just it did nothing to, to, to solve the problems. And I could go on, but there was a whole series of these issues, problems, which one began to accumulate over the years. Now, in the short term, Chavez was able to paper over uh, these problems by with petrodollars because he had always there was so much money. The government uh, controls most of the oil fields, and so they could use that money to subsidize things. For example, by giving people free gasoline, or certainly the, the cheapest gasoline in the world. You, you can fill a four by four an SUV tank there for about I think now it's probably down to like five cents. Uh, it used to be a bit more expensive, like maybe you know forty cents. Electricity be, um, became almost uh, free, but at the extent, at the, but at the expense of not investing in the electricity infrastructure. So the economy became trapped in this populist labyrinth, um, whereby people were grateful for the government for giving them free gasoline um, or 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 doubling and then tripling the state payrolls, so of also giving them jobs. Uh, and yet, at the same time, the government's policies were were killing the private sector and the productive sector of the economy. So, what we basically what was happening was the, the economy was being hollowed out from the inside. And in parallel to this, uh, Chavez was also hollowing out democratic institutions. Uh, he was stacking all of the courts uh, with political appointees, and so the the courts were consistently giving uh, very politicized uh, decisions. Um, same thing with the electoral authorities. Uh, he would uh, he also expanded the state media apparatus so that the government initially he had one TV channel um, and then in the end I think he had about eight, and so became a, a cult of personality uh, was began to flower around the same time as the wheels were coming off the the economy, and this was the pattern that really continued right up until his death um, in 2013.
And it seems like one of the other fascinating stories um, about Chavez, and particularly when you mention his death, um, is that it was sort of it seemed as though it was sort of difficult for him to identify a successor initially. Um, I mean, he struggled for a number of years, I believe, with cancer, um, and sometimes had to go and try to uh, receive treatments in places like Cuba um, and and other locations. Uh, but ultimately. Chavez is able to produce um, a successor for his revolution, Nicolas Maduro, who is now um, the current president of Venezuela. And Maduro certainly has, I think, an interesting uh, story in his own right. But I wonder if uh, you would mind perhaps providing us an assessment of how you think Maduro has perhaps tried to carry on Chavez's legacy up to this point. Yes, Maduro is quite an interesting character. And physically, he's quite imposing. Very tall guy, very broadly built, uh, very thick, kind of bushy mustache. Um, and he was originally a, uh, a bus driver um, for the, in the Caracas kind of metro uh, bus system. And he rose up the union ranks. Uh, I was told that early on in his career, he, he was able to got, he got a doctor's certificate saying that he was sick which then enabled him to work full-time in the union while still taking a bus driver's salary. And he, um, and that's where his background came. And Chavez appointed him as a foreign minister, which initially a lot of diplomats I knew were kind of quite puzzled by this because Maduro really is not well-educated. Uh, he doesn't speak any languages. And so they were kind of, well, why have this guy as your, um, as your foreign minister? But, but he actually kept the post um, for six, seven years, which in the revolving door uh, policy of, of Chavez's cabinet, that was a very long time. And he kept it because he was just very loyal to Chavez. He, he appeared to never have any of his own ideas. Uh, he just did what Chavez wanted. And um, Chavez, of course, liked that. And he, it also helps Maduro's case with Chavez that he was very close to the Cubans. Uh, he had um, uh, spent, would spend a lot of time in Havana because the the alliance with the Castros uh, was the, is the single most important uh, alliance that the that Venezuela had, and so I think Chavez has really trusted him. He thought that this guy wasn't a threat. Um, he wasn't one of those people who's likely to, you know, to to, to try to, to destabilize Chavez. And so when Chavez became quite sick with cancer, uh, although he denied it up until the, the very end that he was going to die, he he always insisted that. This cancer was not terminal, and in fact, that a miracle from God had cured him. Um, but this was a, a deceit really perpetrated on, on Venezuelans because it was terminal. And Chavez prepared the way by appointing Maduro as his vice president um, several months before he died. And this was an indication that he, Chavez, viewed Maduro as the best chance that the revolution could, um, that all of the different factions uh, rival factions uh, within the government and the revolution would be the best chance of keeping them together was with Maduro at the helm. And in this, he proved to be correct. Maduro was able to, once he uh, became president, he, he kept the, the loyalty of the military. Uh, he had the, the Cubans certainly backing him. He also had the so-called oligarchs, which is, is the, the kind of the multimillionaires and billionaires who did uh, who've who've minted fortunes uh, by playing arbitrage and 
um, uh, within the strange economy, all these wealthy benefactors also uh, supported Maduro. And so he has, and since he took over, he's basically kept Chavez's policies intact. He's basically done no changes, um, no really meaningful change to any of the economic policies. Uh, what he has done politically is um, he's become actually even harder than Chavez in terms of jailing uh, certain uh, political opponents uh, and using intimidation tactics uh, against uh, street protesters. Now, the reason he's had to do this is because the economy is now completely unraveling. And this is a directly a function of all of the policies that Chavez had, had, had put in place. And, and often what people miss, they, they think of Hugo Chavez, it's they think, oh, was he, was he a dictator or was he a Democrat? Well, he was, he was a hybrid. He was an elected authoritarian. Um, but the most important thing about him is that he was a completely incompetent manager. Uh, he drove the economy into the ground. And that's why we've seen Venezuela, certainly in the past uh, 18 months, um, with inflation now um, apparently in triple digits, more than 100%, if you believe the unofficial accounts, shortages of basic goods, toilet paper, sanitary pads, cooking oil, uh, spare parts for cars, you name it, um, are uh, there's chronic shortages. Um, the institutions like hospitals, are out of uh, out of medicines. Uh, the police forces uh, do not are often moonlight themselves as gangsters. It's 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 a very sad, tragic um, legacy. And Maduro has proved completely unable to uh, to change gears um, because these problems that Venezuela is now enduring are functions of what Chavez himself had, had of, of all these distortions and, uh, and strange populist policies that, that he entrenched over the years. And Maduro, because he's not as strong as Chavez, in a sense, has not been able to take pragmatic, painful, but pragmatic steps to, to rein in some of the more uh, wilder distortions. And so instead, he's hunkered down by, by trying to be even more Chavez than Chavez. Um, by this, he's um, still picking as many fights with the United States as he can, even though Washington is now um, has, is, has making a big detente with Cuba. Um, he's also, um, as I mentioned, he's become more authoritarian than Chavez was. And this is shows, I think, uh, two things about him. One is that he, he lacks the, the kind of the imagination and also the pragmatic streak that Chavez had, because I think Chavez would have taken certain uh, steps um, to alleviate some of the, of the distortions um, to try to put the economy back in an even keel. But Maduro just has been uh, paralyzed. And the second reason for this is that he feels threatened and undermined on all sides. His popularity ratings have plunged. Uh, they're now into the 20s. A lot of people within Chavismo think he's not up to the job. And so he, he feels that, you know, he's not in a position where he can make painful adjustments um, uh, because by doing so, it would alienate, further alienate some of his uh, constituencies who already don't like him. So what we're seeing is, is a weak um, ruler who uh, feels uh, shackled to these policies that are, are driving uh, the, the country um, uh, over the edge. I mean, and Venezuela really is, uh, is, is falling into the abyss. 
and Maduro is just completely unable to uh, to arrest the fall. Um, I mean, I'll just give you one personal example. My my wife is Venezuelan, and I drove her to the airport in Los Angeles this morning, um, and she's going to Caracas to, tonight to visit her relatives. And her her suitcase suitcases were packed with uh, toilet roll, uh, tampons, uh, detergent, uh, cooking oil, and other essentials like that for her family. And her family is middle class. And and Venezuela is a petrostate that still has lots of money, and yet, you know that that is, those are the things that she now needs to bring to her family so that they can so that they can live, and and that that's the Venezuela that, that Maduro is presiding over. And unfortunately, uh, I see no signs or very few signs for optimism or any signs that things are going to get better. And as you mentioned, I think certainly with um, what's going on between the United States and Cuba um, and perhaps broader geopolitical events, um, that would certainly complicate uh, Maduro's position. And um, as you mentioned, it remains to be seen, I think, as to whether or not he'd be able to hold on to power. Uh, well, Rory, we've certainly taken up a lot of your time today, but before we go, um, I was wondering if you could perhaps tell our listeners about uh, a current project you may be working on, whether it's a book or or something else of that nature. I wish I've been looking for a book idea um, since I've been in the U.S. I've been here three years now, and I've plunged into some projects and then discarded them. My latest. Uh, I don't know. It's, no, it's not a book project, but uh, next week I'll be uh, going to St. George, a little town in Utah, um, which is where the uh, it's downwind from where the U.S. used to test nuclear bombs in the 1950s and 1960s. It's also the site where um, John Wayne filmed one of the worst one of his worst films ever. It's called The Conqueror, where he played Genghis Khan, uh, a dreadful turkey. Anyway, um, <laughs> from that film, uh, subsequently, more than half of the cast and crew uh, got cancer, and John Wayne died from it, as did his uh, his leading lady, and as did a director. Now, some people in Hollywood think that that's the it was the radiation caused by the nuclear testing um, that uh, that gave some of these people cancer. So certainly, the people in St. George. Uh, uh, they have been getting compensation from the government because uh, it's clear that actually some of the cancers there were caused by atomic testing. So uh, it's going to be the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of this film um, uh, soon. And so I'm going to take a trip to St. George to, you know, to find people who are involved in the film and also people who are there talking about who in, still uh, survivors um, from cancer and some of the history of the atomic testing in the in the area, so it's kind of a historic story, but with certain kind of modern, with modern resonance, and I think it'd be more like a magazine story for the Guardian. Uh, so that's that's what's on my agenda for the next few days. Well, it certainly sounds like a fascinating project, and we absolutely wish you well uh, with that endeavor. Uh, Rory Carroll is a correspondent with the Guardian, uh, whose book Comandante Hugo Chavez is Venezuela is available in paperback in bookstores around the world. Rory, thanks again for your time. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Keith. Once again, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to join us today on Latin American Studies. For the New Books Network, I'm Keith Simmons. Until next time.